Welcome to the Chasing Capital podcast, where we focus on young VCs, operators, and founders giving insight and advice to university students. We're excited to have Anushka Vaswani as the second guest on the show today, partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners, where she invests in growth stage startups focused on enterprise software and infrastructure. Previously, she was a third product manager at Masterclass, early stage investor at Matrix, and supported tech companies at McKinsey and Goldman. Anushka studied econ and psych at Columbia University and got her MBA at Harvard. She also runs The Mail, a monthly newsletter focusing on venture and enterprise software. Let's dive in. My first question is, given so many students at Columbia, as you know, like go into banking and consulting after graduation, I was wondering how you got into venture in the first place and whether any of the learnings from those two jobs kind of carried over. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's funny, I, I kind of went, definitely went that route after school um, and joined Goldman um, doing banking. I think the nice thing about VC is there are a lot of entry points into the industry and there's no, you know, one prototypical model, I would say, that necessarily is kind of the best. So there are a handful of people that, you know, get into venture right out of college. Um, there are a handful of people like myself um, that do kind of a stint in banking and consulting um, and then join the venture industry. Um, and then there are a handful of people that, you know, have long operating careers and join. Um, and, you know, there are many different flavors of it. Like I know some people who actually were reporters before and then joined venture. Um, I currently focus on kind of growth and late stage investing at Lightspeed. And mm-hmm. especially when you're doing kind of later stage investing, having a bit of background in kind of the finance or consulting world is super helpful um, because in addition to kind of looking at companies from a product or team or market perspective, Mm -hmm. um, you do spend a little bit of time kind of in a company's financials, um, doing kind of a diligence process and thinking through, you know, what uh, valuation should be and look like. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in my current role, I actually have found that training tremendously helpful. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Have you always been in growth investing or did you also do some earlier stage like Cedar Series A? I was doing, so um, prior to Lightspeed, I worked at a firm called Matrix where mm-hmm. I was um, primarily just doing kind of seed and Series A investing at the early stage. Okay. And 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 why did you decide to kind of make that tri- like transition to yeah. at Lightspeed? I, it, part of it is kind of what's a personal fit for you. Um, and so I, you know, like looking at like some numbers or some level of traction um, prior to making an investment and like the process of kind of really understanding, um, you know, where a company's at and then where it could go. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd worked with a number of companies um, at McKinsey and Goldman that were trying to scale, trying to go public, trying to make acquisitions. And so part of it is also thinking about where you as an investor can be kind of differentiated yeah. and work with a company along kind of his or her journey. And mm-hmm. so I thought my skill set just fit um, a lot better at kind of the growth stage when you as a company have, you know, some degree of product market fit and then are really thinking about like, how do I hit the gas to, you know, really scale, grow um, and kind of go from there. Um, and so that's kind of how, how I thought about growth investing, um, and, you know, personally really enjoy it. 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think that your, I guess like your like relatively brief stint at uh, ClassPass as a PM has that has that helped you? Been, I guess, been more of like an aid to founders in terms of like it's it's kind of it's like in terms of like having operating experience and being closer to the products and stuff like that. I you know I I loved my time at MasterClass and it was a really cool time yeah, to be at the company. Um, and so I joined as the third PM. The company was growing from like 50 to 80. Um, when I was there, we were a series B startup just about to raise our series C. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think if, a, if there are a couple of businesses actually that have um, built competitors to masterclass um, yeah. or maybe have, or, you know, are thinking through or like similar in some ways and are thinking through kind of pricing model or do I launch a subscription offering and some of that. And I think in those conversations, for sure. My masterclass experience is incredibly valuable. Um, But I actually feel that like every company, a lot of companies are like really unique and quite different. And so if I'm talking to kind of like a collaboration and productivity software business, you know, I don't think my masterclass experience is necessarily kind of transferable or that relevant. Um, And, uh, and, and so I personally actually think that, you know, you don't need um, that period, uh, you know, in order to be um, really helpful and relevant to founders. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's about kind of being able to leverage your network, what you can bring, your understanding, and yeah. really tailor it to, you know, that particular person's situation. Because, like, even if you started a company back in the 1990s, like, the way companies operate today is just so different. That at some point, you know, your experience becomes a little bit stale, and making sure not to impose your view of like how a company should be running, or you know, you're you're not kind of in their building. Uh, your job is to really amplify the founder. Yeah, no, that, that's really funny because like whenever I hear a lot of these founders talk, and also VCs who were prior, I guess, operators, they always talk about how it's such an asset, like being a prior founder, but that. That actually that makes a ton of sense. It's pretty, it's pretty funny. I was curious if your kind of international upbringing and sort of background has influenced at all your kind of approach to investing or just looking at markets. I mean, one thing, yeah, I I kind of grew up all over. Like, was born in Dubai, uh, then was in Turkey, then was in Brussels, then was in New York. My family is based in the UK right now. Mm-hmm. And one thing I really love about Lightspeed is we're completely agnostic to where you're based. Um, And so, you know, the first investment I made at Lightspeed was a company called Vinted. Uh, That company is based in Lithuania. And I think, you know, the cool thing about um, that philosophy is I just think there's so much talent globally. um, And, uh, you know, it's exciting to be able to invest in the best companies globally because it's no longer the case that you have to be in California to build a big business and uh you know everyone needs to be here that that's what it needs to look like um and so i feel like that's kind of really leveled the playing field which i personally find really exciting do you think there's still a benefit though of being in the bay area and in california or or kind of diminishing i i think it'll be really interesting to see what life looks like after covid i do Mm -hmm. think there is value in being um in an area where you're surrounded by people, you know, tackling different problems or, or thinking through kind of similar challenges that you're thinking through. 
Um, and, you know, I think it's kind of sometimes the benefit, very similar of like living in a city um, where, you know, it's helpful to, you know, uh, kind of organically meet people in different areas that could be very additive to you kind of career wise or how you're building or how you're thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and today, like, you know, when you kind of interact with people, um, you know, online or, you know, via Zoom, like um, it's a more kind of pre-planned way of kind of meeting or getting introduced. And I think there's something really nice about, you know, living in a place where there is a community and you make friends with, you know, other founders or other people in industry or other people trying to, you know, solve product challenges um, because it can be very inspiring and I think help um, creativity, creatively. Um, and by no means is kind of the Bay Area the only hub. Um, but but I do think it'll be really interesting to see what, um, you know, the world kind of reverts to post-COVID. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested to see also like kind of those, those apparently emerging starter pubs in the U.S. I guess we'll see, yeah. we'll see what ends up happening with that. How do, how do you and the firm actually prevent yourself from kind of getting spread too thin over these multiple geographies? Because is it is it the situation where like a partner at like any particular office is free to look and does look at starting kind of across the globe or do you do different offices kind of concentrate on their particular area? I think so our biggest office is the US and from the US we're currently you know looking across LATAM, the US, Canada, Europe, you know Australia, New Zealand. So you're covering a pretty wide um, range of things. Uh, We're slowly kind of building out a European presence with like people based there. And Mm -hmm. we'll see kind of what that looks like. Um, And then the only regions that I would say are very localized to that region is we have a specific team in India and Mm -hmm. China. Um, And, you know, I think some practices and the way you build companies are pretty local specific there. Um, And so it's really helpful to have kind of partners well-versed in those geos with networks and contacts um, helping kind of uh, work with founders in those areas. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think that like like the traditional kind of companies that are built in Europe are usually like people say that they're kind of tapped because like because of I guess the amount of capital available but also just like higher metrics and more more tractions required at earlier stages. Do you think that that's just because of the types of investors that are there or something due to the actual markets that they operate in? I think I think Europe is like, um, there have been so many interesting companies um, coming out of Europe uh, that are doing really well. And so for example, we invested in an HR software company uh, called Personio uh, mm-hmm. that's you know building out of uh, Germany. Uh, similarly, there's an amazing kind of Robin Hood competitor that's emerging in Europe called um, Trade Republic that oh, really? I think will become really big. Um, there are a bunch of like open banking companies that are going to be really exciting. And so I think like tech innovation in Europe is, you know, it's 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 like as, you know, Deliveroo went, went public and that's kind of a very exciting company. Um, but yeah, th- there have been, I think Europe has been kind of a very active um, has had a very active tech ecosystem for a long time, and I think is only becoming kind of more more attractive. I mm-hmm. think one thing that you know, I would say maybe like, let's say like five or six years ago, um, I think entrepreneurs in Europe had like fewer places where they could raise capital 
Mm -hmm. And the VC ecosystem was maybe a little bit smaller in Europe. I think that's totally changed today where a number of US VCs are really ramping up efforts in Europe and becoming incredibly active in that region. Um, and so, so I'm really bullish on kind of the European tech ecosystem. I think the one thing that's interesting about European startups is that sometimes you want to see them go into a couple of geographies. And mm-hmm. so, you know, maybe ideally you're not just building your business isn't just, you know, all in France, like ideally at some point you also expand kind of through Europe and, um, you know, have traction in like a couple of European countries. Um, and so I think that's like a journey a lot of European startups do go on. Um, and maybe, you know, I think there's some, you know, maybe it's a little bit more challenging at times than expanding in the US just because, you know, each country does have local practices and, you know, specificities that you need to, um, you know, understand in order to build in. Um, So that that kind of is one thought. Makes sense. And you had mentioned the investment vintage, and I was just curious, do you think that there's, because like looking at e-commerce in general, is there going to be, or do you see like there's room for kind of this unbundling where you have specific, like people focusing on specific verticals, like vintage is for like secondhand goods, for example? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting, like Poshmark in the US went public and yeah. that was a great outcome. Um, you know, Vinted has been like crushing it in Europe. Um, and it's been really exciting to see the, that company kind of um, continue to execute on its growth plans. Um, and so, yeah, to your point, like I think there are a number of, you know, commerce is a massive category. Just if you think about consumer spend, um, it's huge. And so I think there are a lot of opportunities in different layers of like the commerce ecosystem to build interesting businesses, whether it's in like, you know, whether you're dealing, whether you're building kind of a consumer company and, you know, Vinted as a platform to kind of sell secondhand goods, mm-hmm. um, whether, you know, there's some like direct to consumer companies out there. Um, and then there are a bunch of companies, you know, building in the infrastructure or application software space to enable e-commerce. Um, and that's actually one area where I've been spending a lot of time. Yeah. Are US, are US startups kind of ne- like neglecting the European market or just unable to execute? Because like, it seems like a couple of these companies, there are other, there are other kind of like US counterparts. And just off the top of my head, I can really only think of like Airbnb that was able to, you know, like successfully actually execute and expand to Europe. I think, I think there are a lot of, um, you know, if you look at like a lot of the major US companies today, um, a lot of them are pretty prevalent, you know, in Europe and have um, and have a presence there. So like, if you think about, I don't know, Slack or, you know, Dropbox or, you know, any any major like software company also um, often or, or consumer company often has like a pretty big presence in Europe. I think, you know, every company when you start Um, needs to be thoughtful about like how they scale. And so, for example, if you are getting started in the U.S. and have a bunch of, you know, your initial users in the U.S. before, you know, thinking about European expansion or opening that additional office, um, you know, figuring out how to really capture the market opportunity you're in uh, makes sense. But I think there is like a certain stage at which every company is like, okay, um, you know, our business is really humming in the U.S., 
you know, do we want to think about international expansion and what does that look like? Yeah, is loyalty a factor like in, in terms of in terms of consumers wanting to like they'd rather spend money or use a product that's from like like from their own country in Europe, let's say, or from like a like a or from just like a broader European startup as opposed to one from the US. Is that something you see or not really? I don't know. I don't know if I've really seen that. Like, but I I do think that, you know under like having an affinity towards a brand or like knowing what the company is, is yeah. huge. Um, and so obviously, you know, sometimes if it's a homegrown company, um, you are more, maybe you're more familiar with it or have encountered it more, or come across it more. Um, but I, I, I don't know if there's, um, I've noticed any sort of like specific consumer preference to use a company from kind of one country versus another. Yeah, that makes sense. And I saw that you would also let an investment in Token. And I was just curious how you see kind of, obviously like no code or low code's huge now and it's pretty popular, but how do you see like Token and also just kind of in general, these no code start differentiating themselves? Yeah, Token is unique in that um, they're very focused on like process automation yeah. and specifically processes where there's like a human in the loop. And so, uh -huh. you know, with like Zapier, for example, you might be trying to, you know, build some sort of like integration between two software products and kick that off. I think mm -hmm. Tonkian is really nice if you're, um, you know, building together like a particular workflow. Um, yeah. And so, you know, for example, um, there's this very large tech company out here that's using them um, and their legal team is using them. And every mm -hmm. time I think they're onboarding like a new hire there's this whole workflow that needs to be kicked off where you need to get, you know, approvals from two people and, um, you know, the, the, ND, the, the um, like signed agreement needs to be signed and then saved into a particular Dropbox. And so um, if you create that type of process in Tonkian um, and, you know, have someone easily just like one click approve it instead of putting together the agreement that the, you know, new, um, employee needs to sign, following up with the new employee to get the agreement signed, to, you know, countersigning it and then saving it into Dropbox, you're saving um, teams like significant numbers of hours. And so I think where Tonkian has really seen some nice adoption is any sort of like ops team that is mm -hmm. looking at like a process and figuring out like, how do we streamline this and like reduce, you know, employee time that's focused on like tons of these like very menial like monotonous tasks mm -hmm. um i think they've been seeing some really nice um adoption in those 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 realms that makes a lot of sense and it's also interesting because there are some kind of corollary services like that example you just gave made me think of docusign and how that could potentially sort of replace it yeah like, i think, like I think that. in docusign's advantage to you know to integrate with a tonkin because like you know, building a workflow tool and product is a very different use case. It's a very different sales motion. But I think DocuSign's goal is like, let's get everyone doing online signatures through our platform. And so if you build your workflow in Tonkian and, you know, DocuSign is the default provider by which all of this is happening, um, yeah. that's kind of a win-win for both companies in terms of an integration. That makes sense. Do companies like Tonkian have to use more of a, like a traditional top-down sales process? They, they historically have gone into um, like ops teams and kind of sold that way. 
Um, but uh, but I think it's good to experiment with both kind of like the product-led growth side um, as well as the top-down side. And you know, you you both companies are created um, you know brilliantly in both domains. And oftentimes, if you're starting off as like a product-led growth company, as you yeah. continue to scale, you augment it with kind of a top-down sales force. Um, and so you kind of see both motions within a company. Okay, interesting. And I was just, I was curious, just because you're like behavioral econ studies in college, have you found that helpful at all? Or do you find yourself like drawing on any of those principles when thinking about companies? I don't necessarily find myself on drawing on those principles kind of day to day. Um, mm. But, uh, but I do think like it is very interesting when you're thinking about like consumer products um, yeah. or, and not even consumer products, but like even B2B products and like, how do you present a pricing page and, yeah. um, you know, incentivize someone to pick a certain option um, or how do we create like a really good experience and like incentivize certain behavior. Um, and one thing I like liked a lot about that major is you've got, you know, a lot of like core analytics that you study and kind of the e on the econ side mm. um, and then the psych side tends to be a little bit like softer um, yeah. and so I, I personally really enjoy the combination that's 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 now it's really interesting do you do product teams that like deliberately incorporate some of the some of like the research in that domain into designing products I mean like you gave a pricing example but is that kind of a commonplace thing where it's more so done sort of not subconsciously but not like directly yeah, I, I don't think, you know, you know, you don't, maybe you're not like directly, um, you know, citing like behavioral economics, like principles or lessons, yeah. but, um, but I totally agree. Like a lot of product thinking, um, you know, a lot of like underlying principles about like simplicity um, or, you know, guiding a user flow or uh, understand, you know, even some of the analytics in terms of like, you're constantly looking at like, how users are using your product and what they're gravitating towards and where they might be getting stuck. Um, and I do feel like a lot of that thinking is very analogous with, you know, maybe some of the thinking you do when studying that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Kind of across like the, I guess the venture ecosystem, have you found that people's, I guess like people's majors in college are irrelevant? Or like, like stuff they studied or not really? Not, I, I think not really. Like, yeah. I, I think it's funny so much of, um, I think so much of what you do kind of job wise is, I, I would say like everything I've done in any job, I would, you know, maybe like 80% of my learning has kind of happened on the job, if not higher. Um, and so I think the mindset of like constantly learning new things and the process of, you know, approaching like a new area and like understanding how to get smart on it you know, yeah. that's very helpful. Um, but I don't know if there's like a moment where I've like thought about a certain like module we learned yeah. and then applied it. Yeah, uh, definitely. Have Is there any kind of like typical advice like given to college students who want to get, let's say like involved in tech, venture kind of, or like let's say want to become a founder that you think is completely like incorrect or misguided? I, well, I mean, sometimes one trope that I strongly, strongly disagree with is that, um, you know, sometimes like there, there are certain people kind of in the valley that, that talk about like dropping out of college um, and then, you know, trying to like chase whatever you're trying to chase. 
Um, And I personally think there's so much value to, um, you know, getting that full college experience, like enjoying your time as a student, um, like immersing yourself with kind of your other classmates um, and kind of completing that like four years of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, there's so much opportunity to kind of do other things, do a bunch of things, try different things, you know, start companies. Um, You know, maybe that, that that is kind of one view I have that's maybe counter to, um, you know, some subset of people um, in terms of their thinking. Yeah. Do you think kind of like thinking, do you think like in aggregate, that's could be that kind of bad for the ecosystem? Um, I I think it's kind of especially, I mean, that's, I guess it's always been kind of a popular narrative, but I think especially nowadays it's become even more pretty prevalent. In terms of not staying in college? Yeah. And just people saying, oh, there's so much more I can learn just dropping out or like doing something else. Yeah. I, I just think, I think from like a signaling perspective, having the degree is like very valuable. Um, I think one thing, and you know, that's useful because our jobs, especially now in this kind of environment, the stuff you do on a day-to-day basis, like changes every like three to six years. And so, um, I think, you know, it is really valuable to have that. Um, and, you know, life is long, like we're going to be working for 60, 70 years. And so, you know, doing something for like a year or two ultimately isn't kind of this massive um, opportunity cost, in my opinion. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that the the focus on being like quote unquote contrarian for I guess for founders and also for investors it is is actually on that kind of negative because some companies are just glossed over because they're considered to be too kind of I guess like too normal. I I actually you know I actually don't know I don't think like people are necessarily that contrarian. Um, like, like if you think about just the venture ecosystem, a lot of the ways you invest are not very contrarian because yeah. typically, you know, you lead a seed round or a series A round in a company and that company is going to need financing in, you know, 12 to 18 months. And so typically someone else in the ecosystem needs to like see the vision, believe the thesis and kind of get around that company. Um, yeah. And it is, and it is a lot about like, you know, people at various stages of the ecosystem need to get excited about it. Just the founder can't be excited about it. He needs to start amassing like a big team around himself that's equally bought into kind of the vision. And so I think a lot of that isn't about kind of necessarily being contrarian. I would say like the one asset class where being contrarian is very important is more in the public markets where a lot of kind of how you generate alpha is like, what's your view on a particular company that you believe that the the market like hasn't already priced in or doesn't believe, you know? Um, But I I would say that that really isn't part of like the trope of venture investing. Yeah. Uh, That might not make sense. I guess it's just one of those things that are overly like publicized, but not petcher in practice. Yeah. Uh, I I think it's really important to have a viewpoint and to have conviction behind your views. I think that's huge. Um, But uh but whether they're contrarian or not, I actually don't think matters as much in the venture industry. Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder if there's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy as well, like at play. In venture? 
yeah no in terms of the in terms of like the like contrarian thinking it's like like these like pub people are like very publicly contrarian about something yeah and i think and i mean i think like a lot of ventures kind of um brand building and you know establishing kind of like a presence or a voice and so sometimes yeah. you know if if your thinking is very generic um that isn't as exciting to you know read about